Okay, so Lessig sets out the case that writing has traditionally been seen as a cornerstone of democracy and that for the past 20th century that the cultural industries, notably film and video, um, but the publishing industry as well, have had a kind of stranglehold over certain types of cultural artifacts, namely in the form of motion pictures and uh, music, uh, whether that be recorded music or sheet music, and, and that they've controlled access and use of these in a way that has run counter to the way the norms that have evolved around uh, text-based writing, that freedom to quote with attribution that Lessig's friend Ben has has drawn on that freedom to become a good writer and presumably uh, you know, enhanced his intellectual abilities and interests through that. Lessig <coughs> then talks about how the blogosphere is an example of, of a read-write read text environment online has in fact been the first wave of, a, of an emerging read-write culture. He positions us by talking about the blogosphere to then start to think about different types of writing, different types of texts. And his central point is that through social media and related digital tools, the transaction costs associated with multimedia production have dropped to such an extent that they are now available to almost anyone. If you own a laptop and a few bits of software, you can produce media almost on par with what major studios would have been producing 20, 30 years ago at almost no cost, except, of course, to your time. In other words, Remix goes mainstream. And he notes that this would have been much more difficult in an analog environment when media were less transmutable and when the costs of access and technology, not to mention training, of course, were far more prohibitive for the average person. So the relationship here is quite clear. The technology has changed. Digital technology and networking has created a context and environment in which um, new opportunities are surfacing for using multimedia text. As a result, today, the written word is only one part and perhaps an increasingly small part of read-write culture on the net. He gives examples comparing it to collage and arguing that reuse of the cultural tokens taken directly from the read-only read domain is essential to the meaning-making experience of remix. Originality lies in the blending and mashing that takes place, not unlike the essays that his friend Ben created by mashing up citations from other writers. Attribution, of course, is still essential, or you get kicked out of school for plagiarizing. But the point is that the process creates new layers of meaning through what is sometimes referred to as intertextual referencing also related to the idea uh, that John Fisk has developed, this notion of semiotic democracy, the freedom to quote. The, fr 
freedom to build on the work of others, the freedom to stand on the shoulders of giants. In a sense, then, Lessig characterizes read-write culture as a conversation where we draw not only on text, as in the written word, but also on images and sounds to express ourselves. It's expanded immensely the domain of self-expression. The dynamics of such an exchange today approach those of oral speech in the sense that the artifacts produced are rapidly produced, disseminated, and often fleeting in their intended use. Okay? So in other words, what I'm saying here is that with the cost of production and access so low, those products of mashing up text and images and words are treated more like the way we treat oral speech. You just say it, and then it's out there. You don't make a big production. You just cobble the words together and say it. Sometimes you're sorry for saying it because <laughs> you didn't think about it. But what I'm saying is that when you reduce the transaction cost to such an extent, those productions, those multimedia productions, have similar dynamics to the world or domain of oral conversation or oral speech, which contrasts dramatically with the read-only culture-dominated era in which cultural products such as video and audio were treasured, quote-unquote, in part because of the costs associated with production and distribution. You didn't simply put together a video on a whim because it just wasn't feasible. It took too much money, too much manpower, too much time, and it just wasn't practical. Right? And here we introduce this notion of the Kosian ceiling and the Kosian floor. Either the cost of doing it far exceeded the value of the output, or the institutional costs associated with having the equipment and the production capabilities, those minimum uh, institutional costs were such that there were just activities that fell below the floor. You know, they just could never produce enough value to even meet the minimum cost of production. Maybe they were done for staff parties, you know, where you might have editors cobbling together bloopers from a production. But they were never produced in a, in a, in a way that um, approached the kind of mass collaboration and undertaking we see now with social media. Walter Ong, a student of McLuhan's and a historian of communication, coined the term secondary orality, secondary orality, to describe our current era in which electronic media create a society in which the properties of a literature culture long dominated by text take on a dynamic approaching those of an oral culture. So we have to step back into our communication history here and, and, and sort of reflect back on that. 